1: Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin.
2: Specific risks include blocked exits, obstructed fire department connections, which is how we get water into the buildings, combustibles accumulating against the buildings, unsafe use of propane and storage of flammable liquids, open flames and there were continued amount of outdoor fires in the area.
1: All right. Good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. That was the voice of Vancouver Fire Chief Karen Fry speaking yesterday as police and city officials moved in to the Hastings Street encampment nearly nine months after her fire danger order to remove tents and structures from the sidewalk. Police moved in. The tents were removed. Let's discuss the operation now with my guest, Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Chief Palmer, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for doing it. Let's discuss the operation here. There was obviously a lot of planning that went into this. Did you achieve your goals yesterday?
2: Yeah, you're right. There was a lot of planning. I mean, this is something that's been discussed uh, on a regular basis over the past months. It's been a growing concern in the downtown east side. Um, City-led operation by City of Vancouver Engineering and enforcing the fire chief's order and VPD of course was there to stand by and keep the peace as it's a dangerous environment down there we wanted to make sure that everybody was safe as far as how it went yesterday we were met with some resistance we did have um, you know a few incidents that were you know widely reported with um, some protesters and activists and you know hot coffee thrown on officers and a wrench thrown at officers and some stuff thrown out of uh, second story windows and stuff but Overall, um, things went quite smoothly. Not, not a lot of issues, actually, interestingly, with uh, with people in the tents. It was more some of the activists in the area. But about 67 of the uh, 81 tents were removed yesterday, and we're back down there again today with the city.
1: Okay, so there's still tents down there?
2: Yeah, there are. So not all of the tents. We weren't able to remove them all last night. So we did remove, like I say, 67 of the 81. There was about another dozen or so that showed up overnight. Um, So we'll be dealing with those as well as the ones from yesterday, uh, today.
1: Okay, what are your concerns there with people continuing to show up and, and pitch tents down there? Because we heard from a lot of people yesterday, residents in the neighbourhood, saying, look, this is not going to solve anything. You can move us along here today, but there's nowhere for people to go. They're just going to come back. Let me play a clip here for you, Christy Poirier, who is a, a resident in the neighbourhood. Here's what she had to say, and I'll get your thoughts, Chief. Here we go. Where are you
3: going to go? I uh, Probably I'll back. i wait a day or two and I'll come right back. That's what we did last time. I've been, I've been here for almost two years
1: straight. Okay. He says, I'll go in the back and then just come right back. We're not going anywhere. We're just going to go back. Your thoughts? Yeah.
2: So, I mean, I'm under no illusions that we're going to, you know, ever get rid of tents in the downtown east side. And that's not, you know, our intention to make the, the whole place tent free, you know, for here on and forever. I think we have to be realistic. In the last, Um, you know, homeless count, and you probably know the numbers as well as I do from 2020. I think there was about 2,100 homeless people in Vancouver. So housing and homelessness is a huge issue in our city, in our province, and in our country. So this by no means um, was going to solve homelessness. And we expect, uh, of course, that there's going to be more tents popping up. The big issue that was arising down there was the decampment and the huge encampment that was, um, you know, building over many months. And we've seen time and time again, Mike, that when you do get large groups of uh, tents and these encampments in our city over time, they lead to nothing but uh, death and violence and crime and really unsafe conditions. And in the case of this encampment down there, we had numerous cases that you know, have been widely reported on your media station, as well as others of you know weapons, knives, handguns, shotguns, assaults, sexual assaults, robberies. I mean, we've had many tents catch on fire, but also the concern about those tents then catching buildings on fire. And I know you've been speaking with Karen Fry, the fire chief, and, you know, she discussed, you know, all the dangers of blocking doorways and um, fire access and buildings catching fire. We've had uh, people stabbed, people shot, people shot with crossbows, firefighters assaulted and chased around, ambulance attendants shot with BB guns like that is an unsafe environment, so we're not going to let the the encampment exist in its current state, but it would be normal to expect you're going to see tents here and there in the downtown east side. That, that's part of life in our city.
1: Speaking of Vancouver Police Chief Adam Palmer, you mentioned yesterday that there, are you mentioned there was some resistance yesterday during the police operation. Were, there were arrests made, is that correct?
2: Yeah, there were three arrests made. Uh, yesterday, um, all assault-related, some on officers. Um, In total, we had about 60 protesters that came out that were on the street that our officers uh, managed throughout the day, but three
1: arrests in total. Okay, you make a distinction between the protesters and and the residents of the people who are actually living on the sidewalk, right? There's a difference there. Are you saying that the people who were doing the assaults were the protesters? Yes, absolutely. So, We
2: actually had very little resistance from people in tents that were, uh, you know, camped down there. Uh, That wasn't the issue. The issue was sort of the the group of people that came down afterwards and were, you know, supporting uh, people that are living homeless. And everybody's got the right to protest in Canada. And we have no problem with that. And we're happy to facilitate lawful protests. but. These were uh, largely people that were not um, from the tents themselves.
1: Some of the protesters were complaining yesterday that their legal observers were blocked from going in and observing the police operation. Is that true? Well, when we first started the
2: operation, we did have uh, um, some access was blocked off on the streets from vehicles. We had a pool camera set up for media. And shortly after that, actually, it was just opened up and people were freely walking around in there. So it was kind of a fluid situation. There was no intention to block out legal observers. And as you probably saw from the coverage, it it was sort of, you know, open to anybody that wanted to mill around down there. But in the areas surrounding the, you know, directly around the the tents, when the city workers were doing their dismantling um, of those and packing up the belongings of people and um, storing them for them and moving them to another location, uh, you know, we didn't have people like peering over the shoulders right there at that moment
1: let me play another clip here for you from one of the residents affected down there who is complaining that people were being told to move but not being given any place to go this is mike Irwin. he's a resident down in the neighborhood let's listen and i'll get your thoughts
3: they haven't specified where they're going to put all the people they've just said that they're going to house their stuff in black bins and where are all the people going they haven't said anything about that right
1: what, are your th- what How do you respond to that? He, he's saying that, well, you know, people are being told to move along, but they're not being given a place to stay.
2: Well, just on the housing front and, you know, the, the housing crisis that we do have in our city and in our province, I mean, police are not the experts and have no responsibility for housing. So, you know, I'm sure the city and the province will have some comments on that. But what I do know of that is that um, the way that's being characterized or mischaracterized is interesting because, I'm well aware of what's gone on down there over the last um, several months. And the city has been down there every day, Mike, and they talk to people every day. And they've actually housed many, many people out of there. Many tents have been removed over those past few months. So we were down to people that uh, just were refusing to leave and would not leave the area. But people had lots of opportunity. And of the people that uh, did have the tents removed yesterday... I believe it's about 10 of them did, um, they were able to facilitate uh, shelter for them last night, Then those were 10 that asked. And then the city was holding additional shelter spaces for people that uh, were leaving the encampment. So the city was making arrangements to help those uh, folks out.
1: Last question for you. Will this reduce crime and disorder in that neighbourhood? You described the assaults, the sexual assaults, the the weapons, the fires. Will this reduce it it, in your mind, or does it just move it around somewhere else well the encampment
2: definitely will reduce things and will help things out because those encampments are nothing but hotbeds for crime for fires for sexual assaults for you know very serious incidents i I thought it was interesting the uh atira women's resource center who you know is a well-known service provider in the downtown east side and they reported recently that 50 women surveyed throughout that encampment 100% of them had been subjected to violence, including sexual assault. So I think that says a lot right there. We've got a third-party service provider providing that kind of data. So those encampments are not safe. They're full of weapons. 19 officers assaulted down there. Numerous uh, citizens stabbed and shot and, um, you know, severely beaten over that time period. And it will help, 100%. You can't have that critical mass in an encampment, and it just makes the city
1: unsafe. Thank you for your time this morning. I appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, let's talk about the sorry condition now of 24 Sussex Drive in Ottawa. This is one of the best-known addresses in the country. It is supposed to be the official residence of the Prime Minister, but... Newly released documents show the four-floor four mansion is housing a large colony of rodents. That is just one of the many safety concerns with the building. Of course, Justin Trudeau uh, does not live there now. He grew up there when his father was Prime Minister, but in 2015, Trudeau moved his family across the street to Rideau College. Rito Cottage, that is, on the grounds of the Governor General's residence. And 24 Sussex Drive has been empty ever since. Newly released documents here now from the National Capital Commission says the house is in terrible shape. It is infested with rodents and mold. It is a fire hazard that is considered dangerous this is a home that has hosted world leaders over the years but now the rodent infestation so bad according to these documents that excrement and rodent carcasses have accumulated between the walls and in the attic and the basement that's just the start then you've got the asbestos the mold the old electrical systems that have created a fire hazard pipes so old in the mansion that they could fail and trigger a catastrophic collapse what should be done about this now what should be done with 24 sussex drive do you repair it do you tear it down and build something else should we even have an official residence for the prime minister i got stefan novakovich standing by to discuss first have a listen to some of these interviews. These are folks in Ottawa. Ask their thoughts on what should be done with the, uh, the house. Here's what they said. The Americans have the White House. We have the Rat House.
4: I think it should be renovated. I country. would say build new.
1: Knock it down. Keep whatever is that they have to preserve. Okay, a pretty sad situation. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Stefan Novakovich. Stefan is the senior editor of Azure Magazine, which is an architectural magazine. I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Stefan, thanks a lot for coming on.
0: Thank you so much, Mike. It's my pleasure.
1: Okay, this is a really sad description of this home. I mean, we knew it was bad, but now we get these more detailed documents here, National Capital Commission that show just how bad it is. Rodents, asbestos, uh, ancient electrical problems that create a fire. What do you what goes through your mind when you hear the description of this building? That's a pretty sad situation.
0: Well, Mike, like Canadians across the country, I was pretty shocked. I mean, and you know, I hope uh Nobody's eating while I say this because it's pretty gross, but they say that there's so much rat excrement and so many rodent carcasses in the House right now that it's not even safe to breathe in there. So, you know, I think it's a national embarrassment, uh, both for the office of the prime minister and for Canada as a whole, that we've let the House deteriorate to this condition.
1: Yeah, the only way you could go in there now, according to this 73 page report here is basically if you're wearing a hazmat suit because the, the air quality is so bad. So let's talk about some of the options here. If they were to repair this and restore 24 Sussex Drive, I mean, we're talking about, this thing's a money pit. You know, one of the more recent estimates I saw, Stefan, would be like $36 million just to repair yeah. it. Probably higher than that now. What do you think?
0: Well, you know, uh, I think when I first heard it first really started to dive into the issue of 24 Sussex a couple of years ago, I was fully on board with the idea of uh, repairing and renovating the residence um, for a couple of reasons, you know, uh, because it's a historic building, it dates to 1868, you know, we don't have, that many buildings of that era, of this size in the country, so it's worthwhile to preserve. And in general, sort of, it tends to be more environmentally uh, friendly to renovate and preserve a building rather than to knock it down and build a new one in terms of carbon cost. But as time goes on, Mike, what we hear about the condition of the house just becomes more and more shocking. So at this point, that like the plumbing is so catastrophic, the rodents. I don't know if it's possible to really repair this residence at this point in a way that's a going to save money and b going to be like worthwhile from like a historic standpoint, from an environmental standpoint. You'd probably have to really gut it and change it so much that it would be effectively be a new house anyway.
1: Yeah. Yeah, no, it sounds like a write-off for sure. It sounds a tear-down, I guess, is what we've got on our hands here. Now, here's one of the other questions people ask. Why was this allowed to happen? Why was this home allowed to reach this sorry state? And the most popular theory is that there was no prime minister, there was no government in the past, wanted to take the political heat, the political criticism of actually spending a large amount of money on a fancy home for the prime minister let's listen to michael wernick here he's the former clerk of the privy council speaking on this point Stefan then i'll get your thoughts let's listen they've clearly always come to the conclusion that the backlash and abuse that they will take for spending money on the residents exceeds uh exceeds the benefit of, of doing the renovation and every government uh, going back to the 1990s has come to the same conclusion okay do you think that's what happened they were just afraid of the backlash and fixing it yeah, I think that's essentially true. I
0: mean, if we sort of play it out in our minds, what would happen if Justin Trudeau tomorrow announced a 50 million dollar renovation of 24 Sussex Drive? You would think like, "Oh, well, this guy who's, uh, you know, grew up rich as the son of a prime minister is spending our taxpayer money to renovate his own house." Right? The political optics of it would be bad. A lot of people would be upset even though the baseline sort of reality behind it, that we ought to have an official residence for the head of government, is really reasonable. So yeah, they're scared to take the political heat. You know, when his dad was in office, Pierre Trudeau added a pool in the 1970s, and even that was a political scandal.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. He took a lot of heat for that one, too. Yeah, but if you think about whether we should even have an official residence for the prime minister, now let's think about our... Our allies in the united states you 've got the White House in the united kingdom you 've got ten Downing Street. do you believe that in theory in principle there should be there should be an official residence of the Prime Minister? do you believe that 's the case Yeah, I think so. I mean the Prime minister
0: first and foremost is a public servant it 's a public office, and as the head of the government, I think there ought to be a public residence to reflect a public office because you know the prime minister he 's not our boss. We are all, as Canadians, in a way, his bosses. We're paying for it. We're putting him into that office. I think that's the right way to think about it. But um, 24 Sussex has never really been like uh, 10 Downing Street in London or the White House in the U.S. And the difference is that those residences are also workplaces, right? Like the president works in the White House, the Oval Office is in there. 24 Sussex has never been in office, so it's sort of never really been as important as those places. But that said, I think, of course, we should have an official residence. Basically, every country in the world has one for good reason.
1: Yeah. And there are ideas to convert a new official residence into a more practical kind of workspace as well. Like there are ideas to let's tear this one down, as sad as that is, as you say, a historic home, but. It sounds like it's a write-off, it's a tear-down. Tear it down, and let's start new. So you build a new residence, and maybe what you could do is you could add on some meeting spaces, maybe a separate building that would have, there's an idea to put a conference center, a small conference center near the official residence. Uh, Have a listen to architect Mark thompson Brandt here on that point, then I'll get your thoughts. Let's listen. And I think we need to adaptively reuse the site, but keep the house and return it to a single-family home. Okay so he says keep the he's he wants to keep the house and return it to a family home but then add on add other structures on the uh, on the property what do you think
0: I think that makes uh that makes a lot of sense in in principle that you know the way that most of these residences tend to function you know like Downing Street or like the White House is that a lot of other stuff goes on there. A lot of people work there. And I think, uh, you know, from a sort of logistical standpoint, it makes sense for the prime minister and all the offices, all the related functions to be sort of centralized in uh, one location. So, yeah, I think that uh, what Mark is saying there uh, is absolutely logical. I think it's the right way to go. But again, like whether or not you can actually preserve this house at this point, I kind of doubt it.
1: Okay. Stefan, please stand by here. Here's what we'll do. We'll fit in a quick break and then we'll come back. And I want to hear from the listeners on this one. So like Stefan said, you're the boss of the prime minister at the end of the day. You own this building as taxpayers in Canada and citizens of Canada. What should be done with it now? Do you think it should be raised? Let's just knock it down. Start over. It could cost what 36 million or more to repair it. Is it time to just forget about that and knock it down? Do you think they should repair it? This is an historic property built in 1868, 34-room mansion in Ottawa. Is it worth saving if it's going to cost that much money? Or should they knock it down, start over, build something new? Do you think there should even be an official residence for the Prime Minister? Phone me and tell me what you think about that. No matter what you think about Justin Trudeau, you think about whether we should have an official residence in the first place. I think it's justified. Have a listen to Trudeau here now. Just before we go to break here, this is Trudeau asked whether he thinks he will ever live in 24 Sussex Drive. Listen to what he says here.
5: We are looking into how uh, to maintain that particular piece of infrastructure. I am, uh, Do you see yourself living there at any point? No, not really. Uh, it's uh, It needs an awful lot of work, and uh, I but think... someone's th- got to make that decision. I- somebody does, and we've uh, turned what to experts, and we've turned... Well, you know, there's a real challenge in this country of uh, anything that a prime minister decides for, uh, you know, that they could potentially benefit from. That's one of the reasons why the house has been run into the ground uh, since since the time I lived there, uh, is that no prime minister ever wanted to spend a penny of taxpayer dollars on upkeeping that house. So I'm fairly resigned to not living in that house for the entire term.
1: All right, let's talk about your day in court. If you get a traffic ticket and you decide to fight the power and go to court, try to overturn that ticket, how easy is it to do that? I once had someone tell me, if you ever get a traffic ticket, let's say for speeding, you should always plead, not guilty because if you go to court and the police officer does not show up which happens maybe more than we think then the judge will throw the ticket out you beat the rap is that true or is that an urban myth let's discuss with my guest kyla lee traffic lawyer acumen law hi kyla
4: hi mike thanks for having me
1: thanks a lot for coming on so i follow you on tiktok and i i Anyone out there, if you're on TikTok, you should definitely follow Kyla. It's really, she's a really good follow on there. And you had a TikTok about this the other day, right? Tell me about that.
4: Yes. So um, I, I guess I got a little bit tired of, uh, of hearing from people that, you know, you can just dispute your ticket and most of the time the officer is not going to show up and your ticket will just automatically be thrown out. Um, and I wanted to sort of dispel that myth because it's a little bit more complicated than people make it out to be.
1: Okay, so what is the reality? That does not happen then?
4: It doesn't happen as often as you may think. I mean, there are cases, obviously, where police officers, you know, they might end up having to respond to a serious incident on their way to court and not make it or they may get sick and not uh, send anyone to adjourn it. But the majority of time, police officers are going to be in court. And this is because the court actually has access to the police officer's schedule. They know when the police officer is on duty and tickets are scheduled for that police officer when they're supposed to be on duty. They also schedule multiple tickets for the same officer at the same time. So the officer will come. They'll have four or five tickets in the same court session. They're more incentivized to show up, obviously, in those conditions because they have multiple matters to speak to.
1: Okay. What about... Negotiation, negotiating in the hallway. Cause you and I have talked about this before and I, I find this is interesting. Like if you decide to fight a ticket, plead not guilty, you show up, let's say the police officer is there in court. Oh, darn it. Police officer showed up. I guess I'm not going to beat the rap on a technicality here, but can you talk to the police officer before you go in front of a judge or go into the courtroom and maybe get the ticket, get the convince the police officer to reduce the fine or throw the ticket out?
4: Yes, um, you can before court, and it's sort of expected that this is the process that most people will engage in and and the officers anticipating this. Um, Before court, uh, you can speak to the officer in the hallway outside and, you know, try and get them to either amend the ticket or drop the ticket entirely uh, or agree to reduce the fine, agree to something lesser so that you don't face the same consequences. And those discussions can often be quite fruitful, um, because a lot of the time, you know, police officers, they don't have a lot of skin in the game. People think that they do. They they are looking for the best outcome that fulfills their public safety purpose, but also, you know, uses court time efficiently.
1: Right. Okay. Now, here's another one I was wondering about. Let's say you do dispute a ticket. Are you required to... To testify, or is it just like in the court dramas you see on TV, like maybe you don't have to testify, you know, on your own case, you can choose not to testify, or do you have to stand up and say something in court?
4: You are never obligated to testify in court. That's a constitutionally protected right that applies as well to traffic tickets. There are circumstances, though, where strategically it might be in your best interest to testify, So what will happen is um, the officer, after they give their evidence and after you cross examine them, um, usually if you're self-represented, the justice will ask you whether you're going to provide evidence. If you're represented by a lawyer, your lawyer will tell you you should testify or you should not testify based on how the evidence has come out. And if there's something that you need to say that's different than what the officer said and the officer didn't resile from their position on cross-examination, it may be strategically in your interest to testify.
1: Okay, what is your typical approach with your clients? Do you typically advise your clients, like, just stay quiet and I'll handle it, don't testify? Or do you think sometimes there is an advantage to put your client up there?
4: There is sometimes an advantage to have my clients testify. But in the vast majority of cases, um, you know, the the strategy is to win without having the client even come to court at all. So I'm permitted to appear on behalf of my clients, which means when they hire me, I go to court and they don't need to come unless I'm intending to have them testify.
1: Speaking to Kyla Lee, Acumen Law. Kyla is a traffic lawyer. Kyla, let's talk about some of the uh, interesting changes to the Provincial Motor Vehicles Act introduced in the legislature this week. There's a lot of interesting changes here. Did not get a lot of uh, media attention here in the last, last couple of days here. What is in this bill here?
4: There's so much in this bill. I mean, one of the big things that I think we've all kind of been wondering when we would see this is uh, the ability of the government to regulate self-driving cars. And they're adopting international uh, international standards for different levels of uh, autopilot vehicles. Um, Mm -hmm. There is a blanket prohibition on anything that is like an autonomous vehicle. But um, they they have a, um, a mechanism set up to allow them to regulate the use of self-driving cars in the future without having to pass additional changes to the Motor Vehicle Act. So this will be very interesting to see.
1: Okay, it sounds like maybe this is some preemptive legislation. Like right now, like a self-driving car is not legal right now. Is that correct? You can't put a self-driving car on the road right now?
4: Well, there's not really anything that says... Anything specific about it in the Motor Vehicle Act. So this will be Mm. if these changes are passed, this will be the first actual prohibition on it. Um, Obviously, it is prohibited in the sense of interpreting all the other provisions of the Motor Vehicle Act creates a de facto prohibition, but we will have an outright prohibition on it, except with exceptions approved by regulations.
1: Okay, this is one to watch for sure because this is looking forward to the future here as well. What about safe passing and following distance for with cyclists on the road? I mean, this is an, another one you hear about all the time. They're changing there's some proposed changes to the law on that.
4: Yes, so they've created a definition of vulnerable road users, which includes pedestrians and cyclists, and they're now mandating a minimum one metre passing distance when passing a vulnerable road user, and a three metre following distance when driving behind them. And they've also created exceptions to prohibitions under the Motor Vehicle Act that um, say that you can't uh, cross a solid line or a double solid line, you can't make uh, a lane change in certain circumstances to exempt those in circumstances where you need to do it to maintain a safe passing distance.
1: Okay, that's very interesting. So a one meter, there would be a minimum one meter passing distance if you pass a cyclist. Is that like, what is the, what is the minimum distance now? Or is there one?
4: There isn't a minimum minimum distance okay. now. right now. Uh, cars and cyclists are both required to ride as, or drive as far to the the their respective sides of the road as possible, and that's and that's basically it.
1: Okay, what do you think of that one meter passing rule? Does that make sense to you? Uh-
4: I mean, it makes sense, certainly, for safety. I am yeah. um, concerned about the way that it's going to be used in cases where cyclists aren't adhering to their continuing obligation to ride as far right as practicable. That um, it could cause some, you know, significant traffic snarls. Um, but, I mean, I guess we'll see how it plays out in, uh, in you know, reality when if yeah. and when it passes.
1: It sounds kind of common sense to me. Like, I can't imagine passing a cyclist less than one meter, I think that would be a little hazardous.
4: It, it, certainly, it's certainly unsafe. And, you know, I think most drivers are trying to give cyclists uh, the room that they need. I think it's situations oh, yeah. like... You know, for example, Kingsway during rush hour, if there's a cyclist in the right lane and you've got three lanes of, you know, of slow moving traffic, um, you know, making that pass with one meter is often very difficult because the lanes don't give enough enough width to make that happen. Right. Um, you know, and that's that's where I'm, I'm concerned that this legislation doesn't necessarily reflect the reality of of rush hour driving.
1: Okay, here's another one that's in this bill, and we've talked about this on the show recently, especially with some of the the deadly accidents involving trucks that we've seen, in, especially in the interior on Highway 5. So listeners in the interior will be familiar with that, those Highway 5 accidents, and I've spoken to a bunch of mayors out there who are asking for a safety crackdown on this this one-lane highway. And one of the ideas that's frequently brought up is a speed limiter, a speed limiter on trucks. So you'd actually physically have a, a limit on how fast that truck can go. Right? So you can't go any faster. You put the pedal to the metal, you'd still wouldn't be able to go over a a maximum speed. Is that how a speed limiter works, Kyla?
4: That is how a speed limiter works. It essentially would uh, cap the speed of the truck at the maximum speed limit uh, determined by regulation. It'll probably be 120 kilometers per hour because that's the maximum speed on on any highway in B.C. Um, But the speed limiter is very interesting because not only does the legislation require this on any vehicle with a gross vehicle weight over 11,000 kilograms um, that's manufactured after 1994 with an electric engine, it is also requiring it... um, uh, requiring uh, drivers of those trucks to permit police officers to enter their vehicle without a warrant, to search for the speed limiter, to search for information to show that it's active and in use, and to seize any data from it at any point.
1: Wow. What kind so of data really- would be on there?
4: Well, there would be data about when the speed limiter is activated, what speeds the vehicle was uh, driving uh, at, at particular points in time. So it can tell a lot of information about a particular vehicle. And in cases of accidents, it will give uh, pre-crash data that may also reveal information about how the accident took place.
1: All right. Lots of calls to traffic lawyer Kyla Lee. Let's get right at it here. Walter in Victoria. Hi, Walter. Go ahead. Hey, um, so I'm just wondering often, like,
0: I'm in slow moving traffic and I got bikes zipping beside me, like, within inches of my vehicle. So, would this
1: one meter rule also be enforced on them if they're oh. passing me? Oh, does it work both ways, Kyla?
4: It, it does not work both ways. It's oh. the obligation of the driver to give the room to the vulnerable road user.
1: Yeah. Okay. Walter, what do you think of that? Uh, yeah, I think it <laughs> should, should obviously go both ways. Yeah, I don't. But if let's be honest about it, though, if someone on a bike hits your car, you're not going to have too much trouble, though, are you? I mean, isn't it the the vulnerable like like you said, Kyla, like a cyclist? How did the government define it? A vulnerable, vulnerable vul- road user. A vulnerable road user is the government's official definition. So, Walter, what do you think of that? They're vulnerable, aren't they?
4: Uh, I agree.
5: I agree. They're vulnerable. I think they're just they need to be rules enforced for them as well. It needs
1: to be equal okay. both ways. Okay, Mark in Nanaimo. Hi, Mark, go ahead.
0: Hey, Mike, thanks for taking my call. Sure, sure. Uh, I'm talking about the speed limiters. I've, been in, I've worked for a trucking company before that's had speed limiters, and when you're going down a two-lane highway and you need to pull out and pass because the other guy's going below the speed limit, because you're limited to a certain speed, sometimes it's not safe to be able to finish that pass before you're out of the area where you're allowed to do it. And what is the the allowable speed limit over the speed limit to pass,
4: or is there one?
1: Okay, that's an interesting one. Maybe the speed limiter could actually make things more dangerous in that situation.
4: I mean, in theory, it could, although there's never uh, an uh, allowable speed limit over the posted speed limit just because you're doing a pass. The only time would be if if you were raising a defense to a charge of speeding that it was necessary for you to speed to protect yourself and your life and your safety.
1: Yeah. Yeah. But of course, if you've got a speed limiter in the vehicle, you're out of luck, aren't you? You can't speed up.
4: You can't speed up, um, although I I believe there might be ways to override it um, manually in those circumstances. I I would imagine that that technology exists because there is an obligation uh, to allow police officers to inspect that it's actually on and working at the time.
1: Oh, that's interesting. Okay, Richard in Vancouver. Hi, Richard, go ahead.
5: Yeah, two quick points. Uh, Like the first caller, I don't like the fact that there's two sets of rules for Uh, essentially, bicyclists and uh, drivers. I think he talked about the fact that the one-meter thing doesn't apply to uh, cyclists, but on the other hand, if they pass you on the right and come up to a stop sign and all that, and you've heard of the accidents happening where trucks turning right and all that, I think the first caller is right this the rules of the road should apply to everybody equally and the second point i'd like to make is about the concept and i find this incredible that in the changes to the motor vehicle act that no one's addressed e-scooters and e-bikes which are not self-propelled but they have motors in them so why are they considered part of the Motor Vehicle
1: Act. Okay, well, I'm glad you brought that up because I believe the the electric bicycles are mentioned and the, there's a lot in this bill here. Kyla, what's in there on e-bikes?
4: Yes, they are creating a a scheme to regulate uh, e-bikes and e-scooters, and it will essentially go by regulation for individual cases. So I expect to see certain types and styles of bikes that are commonly sold and types and styles of scooters be specifically mentioned in regulation as permissible um, under the exemptions rather than having these really, like, nuanced, hard-to-understand rules.
1: Let's go to Joe in Vancouver. Hi, Joe. Go ahead.
2: Hi, how are you doing? Yeah, it's about, you know, I drive for a living and, um, uh, specifically my question of the e bikes and such, it is a kind of a two, a, a two rule system because those people are uh, on e bikes and such. They, they don't really pay attention to the rules. It's more like, a, get out of my way. I'm trying to get somewhere. And I find it kind of, uh, not fair to a driver when they're, when they're literally, they have to,
6: uh,
2: the, pay attention to the rules of the road. And be careful because you're driving a big vehicle. But you know, where does it stop with the with with the e-bikes and and, and the cyclists who don't you know pay attention to the rules and and cause okay.
1: situations like accidents? <clears throat> thank you, thank you, Joe Kyla. We got 30 seconds here. Your thoughts.
4: Well, I mean, I think eventually we are going to have to see some more obligations placed on cyclists when it comes to um, sort of uh, respecting the rules of the road, because the longer we have, um, you know, changes made to drivers to protect cyclists, we also have to put some personal responsibility on cyclists to protect themselves and to ride in a sensible manner.
1: Kyla, thank you for coming on. Where can people reach you? What's your website?
4: Uh, They can find me at VancouverCriminalLaw.com or uh, Kyla Lee Lawyer on TikTok. (laughs)
1: Thanks, Kyla. Appreciate it. All right, here we go now with our oil and gas fossil fuels debate. We've got both sides of it here for you, an excellent panel coming up. We've talked on the show before about the divestment movement, and that's the movement to force uh, big institutions and organizations like pension funds or banks to pull funding for oil and gas projects like pipelines. Have a listen to May Beve here from the environmental group 350.org on in divestment. Listen. The divestment movement is about something quite simple. If it's wrong to cause climate change, it's wrong to profit from causing climate change. And the divestment movement has taken off all over the world with this as its rallying cry. A growing number of investors, representing a growing amount of capital, do not want to be associated with this industry any longer. It is a rogue industry Okay, this past weekend on April Fool's Day, there was a rally outside the Royal Bank of Canada headquarters in Vancouver. They called it Fossil Fool's Day. Fossil fools. Uh, The group was angry about the bank's investments in pipelines, like the Coastal GasLink pipeline, especially in the face of of climate change all right let's discuss this now i got both sides of it for you marcus peterson on the line marcus is the spokesperson for decolonial solidarity and was one of the protesters on fossil fools day in vancouver hey marcus thanks for coming on good morning mike thanks for doing this also on the line is cody Battershill. cody is the founder of canada action that's a pro oil and gas advocacy group hey cody hey
5: good morning mike and marcus
1: Thank you to both of you for doing this. Marcus, let me go to you first. Tell me about the rally that you guys had on the weekend.
3: Yeah, sure. So we met up on, as you said, Fossil Fools Day. Um, Our campaign is specifically addressing RBC's fossil fuel financing. Uh, As you said, including the financing of the VGL Coastal Gas and Pipeline. Uh, Specifically, our grievances are that it crosses through unceded Wet'suwet'en territory. Uh, The Wet'suwet'en Land Defender's under the governance of the hereditary chiefs, are currently opposing this. It's the largest fracking, it's 670 kilometers, and it runs through, approximately a quarter of it runs through Wet'suwet'en territory. And the traditional ter- traditional leadership of the Wet'suwet'en Nation have never approved, never consented to this pipeline, and they've been imposing it since 2012. Even the BC government has charged the pipeline builder TC Energy with hundreds of environmental violations and two substantial fines, while RBC continues to invest billions of their clients' money into this project.
1: Okay, so, so it's, it's uh, not, not supported by those hereditary chiefs, as you mentioned, but it is supported by, or some of the hereditary chiefs, it is supported by the elected band councils, though, of the Wet'suwet'en, right?
3: Yes, that's right. With Wet'suwet'en elected band councils, which are a colonial imposed system, uh, imposed by the Indian Act, they have given their approval. However, they only have jurisdiction over their reserve lands, and the pipeline actually doesn't pass through the reserve lands. It's the hereditary chiefs that actually have control over the traditional territories and where the actual pipeline passes
1: through, and they have never consented to it. Okay, Cody Battershill, what do you say to that?
5: Well, I, I've talked with a lot of Wet'suwet'en people who have, and, and Indigenous leaders who have told me that these big protests aren't really representing the people. Uh, as we just talked about, I mean, Coastal GasLink has Indigenous ownership. Uh, 16 of the 20 nations along the route have a 10% ownership once it's complete. And all 20 of 20 communities, their elected leaders, have voted to support the project and have benefit agreements. So I think at a very broad level, We need to step back, and maybe we need to let the communities themselves, the Indigenous people themselves, speak to each other and work this out internally without these outside influences. I mean, last night, our our CBC was saying that these violent attacks are anarchists coming from outside of the area, even from as far away as the USA. Is that really going to help these communities heal, and is it really going to help these communities uh, develop their economic sovereignty? And, and get yeah. the people out of poverty
1: right you're talking about the the attack on a, a coastal gas link work site there from several months ago that is still under investigation by the police marcus what do you say to that like when cody makes the point that you know we should let first nations deal with this them- themselves
3: well, like I said, uh, it's the hereditary chiefs that have control over these lands and they have never consented. Those attacks, actually, there have never been any charges, let alone uh, convictions of those attacks. There has been, never been any confirmed connection with uh, any of the Wet'suwet'en villages, uh, Gidim Dan checkpoint or otherwise. Um, the recent raid just last week, uh, the violent militarized uh, Uh, invasion of Gidimden village sites and arrested five land defenders, mostly of whom were Indigenous women, including Gidimden Chief Waz's daughter on behalf of the RBC-funded pipeline, was uh, completely irresponsible. There was no connection, no actual uh, evidence provided. They couldn't even finish reading the uh, the, the charges uh, or the reason why they were arresting these people. They just barged in. So you know, we believe that this is a classic divide and conquer tactic. Um, it's, it's you know, been done many times before with many other nations that the oil and gas industry provides some uh, benefits to some nations to the detriment of others. And we're not here to criticize, I'm not here to criticize the decisions of certain nations to survive. No one should have to make these kinds of decisions facing down assimilation, colonial destruction, and environmental racism. These are difficult decisions that are made in times of crisis, and I just hope that we can work
5: together more okay. in the future.
1: Cody, what do you say to that?
5: Well, there's hundreds of Indigenous workers that are working on this pipeline, and I think everyone listening would agree that when you go to work, you have a right to be safe. We've got the federal liberal government supporting this project, the B.C. government supporting this project, And we have all of these different First Nations along the route, workers, businesses, uh, working on this project. Uh, We have seen on the CBC video from Rob Brown just last night, some of the leaders of some of these protests who invited anarchists to come to the area. And yeah, there haven't been any charges yet, but they've also been attacking our CMP vehicles. I mean, we need to remember that our police are doing a very difficult job. And if there's a court order and you break the court order, we do live in a society that does respect the rule of law. Uh, You know, the pipeline itself has made hundreds and hundreds, thousands of uh, 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 contact and meetings. And, uh, you know, we need to work this out together. Um, RBC, I mean, right now you've got nations that want to become owners. Coastal gas link, again, let's, let's just remember indigenous ownership. So what Marcus is really saying is that RBC should not fund the indigenous communities who want to own the pipeline to have own source revenues. That's wrong. It hurts those communities. It hurts Canadians and it helps Russia and other countries like OPEC members who are going to export the natural gas anyways. Mm. It's it's really, it's just wrong. Okay. Go ahead.
3: I I just want to remind everyone that again, there have been no charges laid. There have been no convictions for any of these attacks. No one knows exactly who did them. And I just want to remind that consultation is not consent. They are not the same thing. Both Wet'suwet'en traditional law and the Supreme Court of Canada agree that none of these areas, none of these lands, and none of these nations have ever surrendered their territory. And that title to the land belongs to the nation's hereditary chiefs who oppose coastal gas link. That's under the the uh, Delgamouk decision in 1997. None of the First Nations that consented to the pipeline are actually on the pipeline route. This is pure corporate colonialism. RBC hey cannot claim to be a climate leader and respect Indigenous rights while funding the violation of Indigenous rights and continuing to be Canada's largest funder of coal, tar sands, and
1: gas. Hey, Marcus, let me play a clip here for you from an, an Indigenous leader, because I think this sort of, sort of cuts the diamond in many ways for for Indigenous people who actually support these pipelines and in, in some cases are working to construct them. So this is uh, Ellis Ross, the Liberal MLA at the legislature. He's the former elected chief of the Heisla First Nation. And he's asked here, why, why do you support the Coastal Gas Link Pipeline? And he, listen to his response here, then I'll get your thoughts. Ellis Ross.
5: Provides a way out of the crippling poverty that First Nations endure all across Canada. Eighty to ninety percent unemployment, uh, the highest rates of suicide, the highest rates of people going to prison, the highest rates of our children going to care. If, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over, and keep expecting different results, that's that's a definition of stupidity.
1: So, what would you say to him, Marcus, when he makes the argument that you know First Nations who support the projects like this or working on this project, they're trying to? They're trying to improve their quality of life, their standard of living, and, and all the, all the problems that First Nations have that he outlined here. And so when groups like yours say, no, we need to shut it down, like, what would you say to, to Indigenous people who support and work the, work on these projects?
3: Eventually, we are all going to have to transition away from fossil fuels. The latest IPCC report says that projected, projected CO2 emissions from existing fossil fuel infrastructure without additional abatement would exceed the remaining carbon budget for 1.5 5. 5 degrees uh, Celsius warming. We have a rapidly closing window of opportunity to secure a livable and sustainable future for all.
5: Mark, eight billion billion in
3: 2022 alone to companies involved in fossil fuel expansion. That's a 45% increase over 2021 levels. Look, a just transition must be just that. It has to be just to succeed. We need everyone on board, all Canadians, Indigenous nations, unions, workers, everyone who has a stake in a habitable future. We need good-paying, future-proof jobs and adequate funding for reskilling and tra- training okay. programs. According to okay. some estimates, 90% of oil and gas jobs can be transferred to clean energy jobs. We could okay. gain 700,000 energy jobs in a net zero world. Like This is a net positive
5: That's- if we just Cody. move away from fossil fuels.
1: Okay, let's give Tod- Cody a chance here. Cody, a brief reply, and then we've got to fit a break in here. Go ahead.
5: Marcus didn't answer the question. He's pro-poverty. We've got these Indigenous leaders talking about getting their communities uh, giving their communities a, a chance to succeed, a chance to advance. And the reality is we need all energy sources. So just picking winners and losers based on some hereditary chiefs versus all these other Indigenous communities. What about Haizba? What about the Cedar LNG? What about Kylisms? What about all of this support? These First Nations are becoming owners. They want to attract investment. They want equity in major deals on their territories. And these protests damage their ability to get funding. It's really okay. unfair.
1: James in White Rock. Hi, James. Go ahead. Hi. I was a former oil worker in my younger years, and the amount of money that you can make without an education on the oil
2: patch supersedes any environmental job that you can get in the industry. Your average solar panel installer makes forty grand a year. Your average rig worker makes 90000 in seven months. You tell me how you're going to transition these just jobs to people that are in the oil patch that make that kind of money without a high education, just a strong back, into making the same amount of money in the same amount of time in, in putting up solar panels and windmills. And where are you going to get the materials to build your solar panels and windmills? They've got to come from somewhere. And First okay. Nations, leave them alone. They've got to figure out their government on their own, and when they do, they'll let you know, I promise.
1: Okay, Marcus, what do you say to him? Yeah, obviously these oil, oil and gas jobs are pay well. What do you say to them?
3: Pay well because they're funded well. I mean, they make a lot of money from their investors like RBC. Like I said, Canada could gain 700,000 clean energy jobs in a net zero world, according to a new report by Clean Energy Canada. If we reverse our existing laws, we could lose 100,000 of these jobs. According to a recent Abacus data poll, more than two thirds of Canadian fossil fuel workers. Are interested in jobs in a net zero economy. Fifty eight percent of them see themselves thriving in that economy, and nearly nine in ten want training and upskilling okay. for a net zero employment. Sixty nine percent of workers say that they're interested in switching to a clean economy. Sixty one percent said that Canada should pivot to a net zero emissions economy, and fifty eight percent said that they would like to thrive in that economy.
1: Mike. Okay, code, Cody, what do you say? Go ahead.
5: Marcus is protesting RBC and arguing against Indigenous peoples having access to capital and investment to participate in the economy just because he doesn't like it. We need all energy sources. There is an obvious, resounding level of support for Coastal GasLink, for Cedar LNG, for Kyle-isms, for LNG Canada. We need to get our low-emission natural gas to the world. Demand for natural gas, liquefied natural gas, is going to grow by 76% to 2040 as well as demand for coal and wind and hydro and nuclear. All energy sources are growing. Coal demand right now is at a record high, as well as natural gas and renewables. So all of these things are happening at the same time. Consent is determined by communities. And how is Marcus going to decide which community gives consent and which community he supports? Many of these other communities, the hereditary chiefs also do support the projects. And in some cases, they're both elected and hereditary. So the conversation is not about choosing. No, that's for them. That's that's not true.
3: I'm afraid that's not true. None of the hereditary chiefs, none of the five clans of the Wet'suwet'en have ever, ever consented to this pipeline project. The tactic of the enablers of the fossil fuel production uh, industry and cheerleaders of the climate crisis used to be deny, deny, deny. That used to be the tactic deny the science, deny the data, deny the reality. Now they seem to have quietly evolved to tacitly accept the realities of climate change, but now the tactic is delay, delay, delay. They will do anything and everything in their power to maintain the status quo, make excuses, fabricate lies, spread disinformation. It seems to me they've progressed past this denial stage of grieving the death of oil and gas, and are in the bargaining stage. And I just hope that the planet can survive long enough to see them progress to the acceptance stage. And by the way, this whole ethical oil thing uh, can Campaign that began with Ezra Levant—it's totally
1: wrong. Cody, you get the last word. I got, I got. I got, it, I got to step in there, I got to Canadian stop in there, Marcus, banks. because hang on, I got to give Cody the, a chance here because we only have 30 seconds left. Sadly, Cody, go ahead.
5: Well, we've got Indigenous peoples in Bay Street and Wall Street looking for ways around the challenges of the Indian Act to be more self-sufficient, and Marcus is pushing for them to stay there. To stay beholden okay. to the Indian Act. They have the sovereignty. They should have the sovereignty or and right to choose for their for, for themselves and to decide which projects they want to develop right thank now. Thank you guys. Pipeline thank, industry in Canada, thank you guys
1: for a good re- thank you guys for a good discussion. I wish we had more time. We got a ton of phone calls here. We'll just have to have you back. All right, we've got the Easter weekend coming up great time to spend with your family how about taking a ride on the stanley park train Oh no scrap that idea it is still shut down because it's fallen into disrepair now here's the question why is it that the vancouver park board can't keep a toy train running but many other organizations have no problems keeping their train rolling That includes Gailey's Farm near Victoria. They have a very similar train there. They keep their train running, no problem. Have a listen to Jim Sturgill here. He maintains the train.
6: If you don't let it get to that advanced state of deterioration, you can keep it going on a relatively normalized annual operating budget.
1: Okay, here's the good news, though. The Burnaby Central Railway will be operating this weekend. The Stanley Park train may be shut down, but you can still take your kids for a train ride this weekend. Let's discuss now with my guest, Ken Lear. Ken is the president of the British Columbia Society of Model Engineers. Ken, thanks for coming on. No problem, Mike. Thank you for having me. You bet. Congratulations to you and all your volunteers there with the Burnaby Central Railway. It's going to be a wonderful Easter weekend here for everyone who gets to ride this model train. Thank goodness somebody can keep a train rolling down the tracks in, in this region here. This is awesome. Now, tell me about this railway now, Ken. Like, what Can you describe it for the listeners?
6: So we are a miniature railway. Our trains are one-eighth scale size of the real trains out there. We have just over four kilometers of track, and we go through some nice street areas. We've got tunnels. We've got bridges, and it's a great riding experience for people. We've got some real live steam trains and so it's just like a real steam train and it pulls you there so it takes a lot of work from all of our volunteers to keep all of this going out there for the public's enjoyment.
1: Yeah, I love it, if people have seen the pictures and videos online you can easily access that and it's a beautiful looking model train and this is, this is the real deal, this is not like some non-functioning model, this is a real train, just smaller.
6: Yeah, it's just like a real train. The steam trains have got basically all the same parts and running gear that the big full-size trains had, just in yeah. miniature.
1: Yeah, I love it. Now, it's people are familiar with the Stanley Park train, which is, of course, Nas has been running for quite a while now. It's small. Your train is smaller than the Stanley Park train, right?
6: Yes, our train is smaller than the Stanley Park train. So on our riding cars, you sit one person wide instead of the Stanley Park trains, which is wider, and you're close to the ground. It's a really good riding experience for everybody. And everybody's welcome. Young kids up to, you know, the 94 year old kids are welcome to come out and ride as well.
1: Okay. The whole family can come out and ride the train I, I love it. And you mentioned that, did you, is it a steam train or a diesel train? Like how, what's your power source?
6: We we have steam trains that run that are powered by steam, and then we've got other trains that are powered by electricity, even though batteries, even though they're models of a diesel electric train you see out on the real railroads. And then we've got a couple that have got a uh, gasoline engine that powers a hydraulic drive. So we've got some different ways to make them run out there to make sure we can run all day long for the public.
1: Okay, so you'll be rolling this weekend, Easter weekend. Here, where is the train? Located if people want to come, come out and go for a ride.
6: So we're in North Burnaby, so we're actually at 120 North Willingdon Drive, which is on Willingdon Avenue, sorry, which is on just north, five blocks north of Hastings, East Hastings Street. And we're open rain and shine from 11 till 5 o'clock, with the last train leaving the station at uh, quarter to 5. And this weekend, we do have volunteers from the Burnaby. Firefighters Association out to help us on Friday as well, and really help us with that need. We need more volunteers to keep this operation running for the public's enjoyment.
1: Right, and it's located in Confederation Park in North Burnaby, is that right? Yes, we're the back back end of North End of
6: Confederation Park.
1: Okay, that sounds like an awesome location. How much does it cost? Is there a charge to ride the train?
6: There is a charge for everybody that's three years old and up, it's four fifty per ride, or if people want to come back lots, they can buy a 10-ride pass for $40. And okay, the 10-ride well passes uh, are good all year long. They don't expire.
1: Well, that sounds like a bargain to me. I'm speaking to Ken Lear, president of the British Columbia Society of Model Engineers, and he and the, his volunteers are running the Burnaby Central Railway in Confederation Park. Does it take a lot of work to keep the train rolling? How many volunteers do you have? And you know, this is this requires some know-how, right? And skill to keep this train rolling.
6: Oh yeah, it's it requires a lot of volunteer hours where they're all year long maintaining the grounds. A lot of our trains we have to custom make the parts. We got people working on our machine shop and just even running the trains we take we need about 800 person volunteer days just to keep the trains running for the public during the hours and then off season is the grounds maintenance of our track and maintenance of all of our rolling stock so there's a lot of work for volunteers
1: right and you welcome volunteers to come out if they want to get involved right as you touched on there
6: absolutely volunteers can come out and talk to us any of our running days are open or on our website bcsme.org there is a volunteer tab on there to tell people what we need volunteers to help with and how they can get involved with us.
1: okay and i love that you've got the Burn to be firefighters on board here and helping out and doing a little bit of fundraising because i know when the stanley park train was shut down that was a big disappointment to, for the firefighters burn fund that was one of their biggest fundraisers of the year there at christmas time of course That didn't happen but it's wonderful to see the firefighters out uh with the Burnaby train, like, will they be raising money there?
6: Yes, they will be raising money. We will be giving them uh, some of our, pro- our money from the day, and they will be out there with their boots too, collecting donations. And they'll be out there helping us this weekend too. They're a great charitable organization in the community. We've been part of the community for over 30 years, so we thought this was a good way for us to help give back to the community as well.
1: Okay, that's all great. Now let me ask you this, Kelly. Like, this is the question that's burning in my mind here. Why is it that you guys and your vo- a bunch of volunteers can keep your train rolling, but the Vancouver Park Board, you know, with a budget and the hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of staff, they, they can't keep their train rolling? I mean, what do you have any thoughts on that? Like, well, how come you guys can do this and they can't?
6: Uh, Our volunteers are very committed to running our operation. They're all very interested in making sure we've got something running for the public. It's part of our hobby that we can share with the public by running it. I mean, we put in lots of volunteer hours. We've got our volunteers are there all the time, and we're dedicated to making sure we can keep this running for the public as a a cost-friendly way for public to come out and enjoy themselves for the day and share our love of trains with everybody.
1: Yeah, well, I, I think it's fantastic. What do you think of the Stanley Park train being shut down for so long?
6: Uh, I think it's tough. I mean, I remember riding as, as a child many years ago and really enjoyed it. So, you know, I hope one day it can get up and running again and uh, um, it's missed by the public, I'm sure, and hopefully if people are really missing that, they can come out and ride with us for a while. Yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> at least you guys have your train rolling so people yeah. can get a ride with you guys. Like, do you think, I was just wondering, like, your people are, you guys are passionate about trains. Um, you know, maybe oh. Stanley Park, Stanley Park should bring some volunteers in there. Maybe you guys could get the Stanley Park train running.
6: Uh, I don't know if we could. We've got, we're have got we so busy with ours, our volunteers are so stretched right now, we would have trouble doing something else, because we've got to make sure our trains are running well and that our track and everything is safe for the public to ride on.
1: Okay, well, I think you're doing a wonderful job there, Ken. Thanks for coming on. Have a great weekend here as the train's rolling this weekend in Burnaby.
6: Perfect. Thank you so much for having us on, Mike.